I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. I clearly remember the night in 1990 when I witnessed something that would later change my perspective as a solo percussionist. I was watching the televised Henry Wood proms in London, and playing at that exact time was an orchestral work that would change not only my life, but elevate the standing of solo percussion to a completely different level. The piece of music was the world premiere of The Confessions of Isabel Gaudi by a young Scottish composer, James Macmillan. Well, I was transfixed by the sheer power and the changing of gears and waves of scintillating sound colours and, of course, the brilliance of each member of the orchestra. And at the end, I was left breathless from the experience and I knew I had to be in contact with this composer to ask if he would consider writing a percussion concerto for me. Of course, the rest is history, and 1992 saw the arrival of one of our great percussion concertos, Veni Veni Emmanuel. It was the first ever percussion concerto to be performed in the history of the proms. But James Macmillan was not a one or indeed two-piece wonder. The scope and magnitude of his compositions to date has meant that he is now regarded as one of the world's most prominent, important and sought-after composers. The kind of composer that in centuries to come, I feel sure people will still be experiencing and connecting with as an essential part of their lives. James, thank you so much for spending this time today with me. You're very welcome. It's great to see you again. It's great to join you this morning. Thank you very much. And we've known each other for about 30 years or so, but we don't actually see each other that much, do we, really? Because we're all here, there and everywhere. That's right. And uh, I suppose in these last few years, uh, my my life is, uh, well, everyone's life has has become more solitary. Um, For a composer, it's... uh, it's no bad thing, I suppose. I mean, the solitariness is a, is is important. Um, it allows you to focus on on the music. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I, I uh, like you. I, I'm a, a jobbing musician, and all that has stopped for for the moment, at least. And uh, there's there's great anxiety and pain in, amongst the musicians. All my friends, for example, that um, whose whose life of music making music making has been cut short. I can just mm. imagine what it's like for you as well. But I, I, I hope that um, better days are around the corner quite soon. I, I, I think so. And, and I mean, I was going to ask you, this past year, of course, has changed the whole landscape for not just our industry, but, but you know, right across the globe. And I was just going to ask, what have been the pros and the cons from a composer's perspective, mm. you know, having such a change in dynamic, as it were? What have been the advantages and perhaps the disadvantages? Well, uh, the, advantages for, the advantages for me, I suppose, relate to the fact that uh, I've written a lot of music, uh, perhaps mm. a lot more music than I, I thought I would. I've got through... Um, my my work quicker than I thought. Um, hope that's a good thing, uh, but it does mean that there's a a whole range of pieces beginning to mount up. Um, they've they've had the premiere dates. Those dates have come and gone, and the music has not been performed. So one mm. hope that hopes that the um, cancellations are not cancellations as such, but really just postponements. Uh, there are new dates coming through for um, rescheduled 
premiers, mostly next year, fingers crossed. Um, but it does mean that, I mean, I, I moved away from the big city, uh, Glasgow. I lived in Glasgow for decades, really. I moved out here to the North Ayrshire countryside about five or six years ago. Uh, because of the quiet and because of the solace and because this uh, remote um, house uh, is very conducive to work. And um, and that has continued um, very uh, pointedly uh, and intensely during the uh, lockdown. Um, mm. The, the disadvantage, uh, disadvantages, I suppose, I've hinted at it is that um, the, the the music making the live music making has come to a halt. You know, I have friends um, all over the world whose whose lives are on hold, uh, who've had to change careers in some cases, and hopefully that that won't be a, um, a a definite thing. Perhaps they'll be able to come back uh, mm. to music making in the future, and I feel for them. Um, and and, I, and the, so the disadvantage is this shared anxiety amongst us all about what on earth is going to happen next. I can quite understand that. And do you think that the pandemic has, in a way, made you think about the type of pieces you might write for the future? I mean, obviously, a lot of the uh, the concerts that are given are pared down number-wise as regards to the musicians, so there's a lot more chamber pieces and, and smaller ensemble pieces being played because they can be socially distanced and so on. And and do you think this is something that you might uh, perhaps, you know, think about moving forward, writing for smaller forces or different combinations or rethinking how an orchestra is engaged as regards to an audience and thinking, what does an orchestra mean to our society mm. in this very changed landscape? Mm. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, um, w one of the events I was able to uh, undertake uh, recently was um, a performance, if that's the right word, of a, of a new oratorio, a Christmas oratorio of mine. And I actually got to Amsterdam in January <clears throat> to perform it with quite large forces, no audience, of course, but the piece went out live on Dutch radio. And um, uh, we, we did the performance in the Concertgebouw in, in Amsterdam. And the, what I noticed was it was um, a pared-down orchestra, as, as pared-down as we could manage, but, but a chorus, a professional chorus of 30, 36 voices, a couple of vocal soloists. But the difficulty was trying to, with all the social distancing, was trying to keep all those forces together and uh, just trying to get the ensemble absolutely right was such a struggle. And I, I, I get this from, uh, feedback from many musicians uh, who, even, even in smaller uh, forces, because they've got to sit um, well apart and, and even desk partners amongst, uh, amongst the string players are, are not together and how, how are they going to... But gradually they are overcoming those difficulties and I think it will impact on general musicianship perhaps. Um, mm. playing, playing, on a, playing as a solitary player rather than a desk partner in a string section uh, requires a, a big step change in the mindset um, and um, perhaps it will have a, a strangely beneficial impact on the way that we think, you know, a much more intense um, engagement with people round about us. 
And yes, I mean, I, I'm also aware that uh, that numbers are being cut for for these um, performances, these audience audience lists. Uh, performances um, and, and it, it is impacting on the way that we think about orchestra. My mind has st- started turning back to chamber music again. I, I've mm-hmm. neglected my chamber music in recent years, and uh, it was a it was a, a joy to be able to get to, to write a string quintet uh, in this last in these last few months, for example. And I'd like to do more of that. Um, I also run a, a festival in Scotland, the Cumnock Trist, and uh, we had to postpone, well, cancel completely last year. And, and we're now thinking ahead how we're going to do that with social distancing in the, or- in the audience, but also ha- what kind of groups we, we, we bring uh, to the festival in Cumnock. Mm. And uh, obviously there will be smaller smaller groups for some time. We don't know how long that will be. But it also means that we've had to think more locally. And perhaps this is a, a, a growing advantage, that we, we are turning back to thinking about what we can do for our communities more uh, and what musicians in the locale can bring to those communities um, International travel has been hit, of course, uh, and that, that is affecting all our plans. Um, I know that conductors are not able to get to concerts here, for example, so orchestras are taking on board uh, local conductors and local soloists, um, uh, perhaps more, more than, than usual. And maybe that will focus our minds on uh, the importance of the locality, the importance of uh, the local community which we serve. And, and that's something that we at the Covenant Trist may may regard as an advantage in some way that we 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 in, we focus our intense um uh thoughts on what our community needs uh, culturally mm. what our community needs locally um and that might be a good yeah. thing and it's really interesting because I'd like to to talk about the Cumnock Trist whole initiative in a in a little while. But you know, it's interesting what you're saying about uh, tapping into our communities again because there's there's been such a, 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 a heavy discussion and and push towards music education, arts education, you know, over many, many years now. And I think perhaps you and I are of the generation whereby we really benefited from the immense richness in school education, school music education that we had. I believe we both had really rich landscapes, both within the school and also in the community. And uh, but of course, that's sometimes quite patchy nowadays. And perhaps, you know, being a believer in in kind of a yin and yang situation that, you know, although we're experiencing very dark days at the moment, there has to be some positives out of this. And it might be that, you know, through the lack of international travel and, and performances, if we've as we've known, that perhaps looking closer to home might inject that sort of real inspiration for our, our our communities, our young people, what music means within the family, uh, social situation, etc, etc. So it may not be such a bad thing. Mm. Well, I know that many musicians involved in music education up here in Scotland um, have, have a, a, a kind of galvanising uh, approach now to making music work more in their communities and we, we've perhaps been able to speak more directly to those in power about the need 
to uh, focus on the very young in our communities, to get music education back as one of the basics again. Uh, because I think you're right, there has been a sense of drift, uh, both north and south of the border, um, and, and the, the great um, experiences for people like us in the 1970s and 80s and so on of uh, learning music at school and, and not uh, <clears throat> forcing our parents to pay for music lessons too much. Um, th those days are have gone, uh, or at least they're looking very precarious, and it would be a, a great scandal if it was just the well-off uh, because they were able to afford music lessons that were able to benefit from um, music provision. And um, those of us involved in, uh, in, in music, music in the community, music in edu education, have been regalvanised in uh, telling that story to those in power, speaking truth to power, as they say, um, <laughs> and um, um, making them... Uh, re remember uh, that this, this is so important. Uh, a, a life without music, an education without music, is is an is a an education and a life impoverished, and um, not everyone is going to be a, a, a professional musician. But to go through a school life uh, uh, without uh, being involved and exposed to music in all its forms is is a great dereliction of education uh, if that's allowed to happen and i think we're looking at the possibility of that happening more and more for a lot of uh, of uh, young people and and that would be a, a a a great mistake it would be an assault on the educational uh, opportunities of the young and um, it's allowed us uh, to uh, renew uh, those arguments uh, to government and to the politicians and, and so on, um, that um, perhaps um, in the middle of this lockdown and a pandemic, we can start really focusing on the basics again. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what, has the pandemic revealed something about you as a person that perhaps has surprised you? Oh, uh... <laughs> <laughs> there, I put you on the spot, James. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I, I think I, I've always felt and always <laughs> thought that the, the interior life was the important life. And I suppose being a composer or any reflective person generally, one has to believe that and one has to um, focus on that. But sometimes you can, you can lose sight of what it actually means, and mm. um, you know, an, an enforced silence like this, an enforced um, restriction, where you don't see people, where you don't get to work with your peers, it it it, it forces you back in on yourself, whether we like it or not. Um, but you know, there has been a, a great cultural hinterland in our civilization and in our, in our history of people, not just artists and musicians, but thinkers and uh, um, spiritual people as well, uh, one way or another, that ha have uh, gone deep into the interior life of contemplation, of meditation, uh, and in the Judeo-Christian experience, uh, the, the world of prayer. Uh, and it's in, in, that, in the, that interior life that perhaps one finds the real essence of what it means to be human. Um, it, it, 
there are there are hardships involved in that interior life if it means a, a, a lessening of of social activity. Of course, of course, that's the case. Mm. If we lose lose our connection with our peers, if we don't see our friends and family, what that is a real loss to us. But there are some perhaps some compensations in that we're allowed allowed that scope uh, and time uh, to go deeper into the serious things, the serious things in in our thinking, uh, and what it means to be human. Uh, and it's certainly given us a lot of time to uh, reflect on, on those uh, deeper truths. And mm. for a composer or any artist, uh, these are essential moments. These are essential um, reflections. And perhaps we will all e- emerge um, emboldened and um, strengthened through these restrictions in the end. At least that, I keep my fingers crossed that that will be the case. Absolutely. And I mean, I've read your wonderful book, I have to say, A Scots Song, A Life of Music. It's, it's a real gem and I highly, highly recommend everybody reading this book, whether you're a musician or otherwise. And it's very thought provoking and very moving in places. And especially when you describe the, the very, very special relationship you, and, and bond that you had and actually still have spiritually with your granddaughter, Sarah, who passed away a few months before her sixth birthday uh, a few years ago now. But, you know, I think one question that composers are asked is who or what do they compose for? You know, is it for themselves, the public? Is it a, an event, an occasion, a, a landscape, a, a painting? What is it? And one of the things that I, I very much felt from this book is that the music you, you write is pertaining to your journey and all that you've experienced and the many many people that you've you know encountered and but also the very deep listening experiences that you allow yourself through reflection and the thinking and the digesting of if your thoughts in relationship to uh, y- you know events in the world and do you think that it's possible to write a piece without having a more personalized reason to it if that makes sense i've kind of asked that question quite clumsily but but hopefully you'll you'll see the essence of mm. it you know or do you think you can start with a blank sheet of paper and think right i'm going to write a piece for trumpet or percussion or piano and in a way write for the instrument as opposed to getting away from the instrument mm. and giving that experience well, it's uh, it's a very good question, and it's it's something I, I confront um, as as many musicians and composers do all the time. Who is your audience is also part of that question. I think who am I writing for? Who does who does a composer write for uh, when mm. he writes music? Um, and there have been many different answers to this over the the centuries and, and generations. Um, yes, of course, music is a, a social. Activity. Um, it would be a strange music indeed if if no one ever heard it, uh, or if it if it simply existed within the the mind's ear of the composer. So there has to be a kind of social dimension to writing music, um, <clears throat> but um, the music does have to come from a very special place and a very unique place that only the the individual composer can um, uh, create. 
And <clears throat> but in, in in that dichotomy, you know, is it is it just for me, uh, or is it just is it, is it for the world? Uh, there are there are a lot of tensions and a lot of um, ambiguities. And uh, I sometimes think, and as you're probably aware, Evelyn, uh, and, uh, and as our listeners are aware, uh, there have been, especially in maybe in the last century or so, a lot of questions about uh, the nature of modern music, which is sometimes regarded as esoteric and difficult and um, hard to understand sometimes. And there's been a, a hinterland, a, a kind of historical hinterland behind that. Um, as composers, especially in the, mid, in the beginning of the 20th century, some of them at least began to move away from their audience and began to think that the audience um, didn't have the capacity, one way or another, intellectually, to understand what they were doing. Quite an arrogant attitude to, when you think about it. But, you know, you, we have to remember that the likes of Schoenberg, and a composer I admire greatly, nevertheless, he and his colleagues established... Uh, uh, a society for the private performance of new music. Well, why why a private uh, society for new music? Well, it's because that um, they and only they uh, were able to understand the music, and that the the audience out there um, ha- ha- didn't have that intellectual capacity, and that um, introversion, if you like, has coloured uh, the history of modern music. You you could say. Um, to such an extent that even today uh, you still get these uh, conversations and questions. Who is a composer writing for? Is it for me and the likes of me? Uh, the, the, intellige- the musical intelligentsia, fellow composers, uh, critics, musicologists. Well, I, I would be very upset if, if it was just them. Uh, I, I have a, an idea that um, the music does have to have a... A, a generosity of spirit that you, you can speak to the uninitiated. You can speak even even with the most complex of means and, and sounds. You can uh, communicate with people that may not know much about the world of esoteric modern music. And um, mm. you know, some of my um, most exciting and life affirming moments were when those those moments happened. Like, for example, and you, you've made a reference to it already. Uh, uh, an audience who didn't know who I was heard the percussion concerto I wrote for you, Veni Veni Emanuel, at the, for the proms in, in 1992. And, you know, that was an audience of 5,000 plus, and um, they, they, that wasn't the, that, they weren't the aficionados, they weren't the musical uh, insiders, as it were. Maybe some of them were, but the vast majority were not. There were people that were there uh, because of a, an innate cur- curiosity and a love for music generally. And it might have been because of a love of older music that brought them there. They, they didn't know what they were going to hear from, from you or from me. Um, and, and that um, interaction and that uh, possibility inspires me. I suppose if, if I was to ask the question, answer the question, who is my audience? Who do I write for? I would have to say that I have an ideal listener in mind. And, and this is where I, I, I may sound a little bit arrogant, I don't want to, but that ideal listener is, a, is someone a bit like me. Uh, and what, what I mean by that, to, to, to counteract the arrogance, uh, is that the, my ideal listener is someone who is thirsty and hungry for music they don't yet know. And um, that, that's a, a lot of very different kinds of people. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 
keen that people who are open to the possibility of being inspired or moved or excited by new things, as yet unheard things, are out there. Uh, that are out there in their multitudes. And uh, my experience of musical life is that that's the case. They're mm. not the intelligentsia per se, they're not the insiders, they're not the, 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 the new music uh, ghetto, uh, as we sometimes mm. refer to it. They're a wide group of people. We also know that in, in classical music there are people who are not curious, and, and we, we have to kind of accept that. There are people who know what they like and like what they know, and they tend not to be open to the new. But even there, um, the... the, the, the um, the, op- the opportunity for conversion, if you like, is there. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. convince people who may be quite difficult to convince that there is something worthwhile and, and indeed even exciting or indeed moving in the making of modern music. So mm-hmm. your question is very complex, Evelyn, and, and it, mm-hmm. it invites many, many complex answers. Um, but 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 my my aspiration is to reach a a, a, um, a, a wide group of people. Uh, sometimes they are they are being convinced very, for the very first time that mm. um, modern music is something for them. But I think also uh, you know with the explosion of social media, it is allowing people uh, to be exposed in different ways to our living composers. And, uh, and indeed our composers of the past. And that surely must be a good thing. I suppose that the, the thing that I struggle slightly with is that, you know, when you experience your pieces in a live situation, it is an experience. You know, every sense is fulfilled. That guttural kind of physical sensation of the, the, the sound. And, you know... It's it's a very different experience watching something on your laptop or on a, an iPad or whatever it is. You know, you're not getting that bodily experience. But nevertheless, it might just still plant a seed, you know, towards someone's curiosity, thinking, oh, well, that was interesting. I'd like to know more about James McMillan's music or, you know, something like that. Yes. Uh, you can't beat the live experience, and I think mm. part of the, the the musical education that we were talking about earlier uh, has to be uh, getting those young people into a concert hall uh, and hearing a, an orchestra, sometimes for the first time. Sometimes it doesn't really matter what the orchestra is playing, but just the uh, the experience of being up close to such a, 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 a miraculous sensation, a miraculous... Um, invention as an orchestra or indeed mm. a, a, a wonderful choir or a virtuosic soloist uh, it, it can be a life life enhancing a life-changing moment so the the, the young the young people need to be brought to uh, the live uh, musical performance or indeed the live musical performance has to go to them and um, that's why we we at the Covenant Trice, for example, work very closely with the schools in in Ayrshire, um, not just bringing great musicians in to uh, to work with them and to play for them, but maybe to get the the youngsters playing uh, alongside these great musicians. Mm. Um, it's it's a, a fabulous experience when you see that and you see that interaction. 
And do you feel or have you noticed a difference? Because music is quite patchy in our schools and communities at this precise moment. I mean, have you noticed a difference in the music that's being written by our young people because it might be more digitally uh, oriented because they don't have access to, you know, musicians in their schools or a school orchestra or a school band or choir or whatever it might be. It may not be available in the community and so on. Are you finding differences there? Because surely with this incredible initiative that you set up with Cumnock Trist, that this has got to be a great thing, you know, for young musicians experiencing real music and finding out, oh, heavens, you know, trying to balance uh, a violin with a timpani or a cello and a trumpet or something, uh, which you can do digitally, but it might be more uh, challenging with the, the real thing, as it were. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. The, the digital, digital experience has been great in many ways uh, for many. And in music, of course, it allows you to make music almost immediately in your, in your bedroom sometimes and, um, or in your study at home. And, um, and, uh, and of course, it, does a, it help, helps the whole self-publishing uh, industry as well. You can make your own music um, through the whole uh, Sibelius um, apparition uh, um, equipment and so on, which is great. Um, it, however, we, we are finding, and I've certainly found that that, that digital sound is, is very unreal and it gives a very unreal uh, perception uh, to the young musician of what their music might be like. And we, we ha certainly I've found this not just uh, working with student composers at colleges and universities, but even now in, in secondary schools, that um, the digital experience is something that has to be absorbed, but has to be transcended as well. Don't just rely on it. Um, imagine this music being played uh, by either your peers or your teachers or visitors. So we see it as important that we do get uh, real musicians live professional musicians in amongst them to play their music so that they can hear their music in workshops. We also are quite traditional in the way that we uh, are traditionalist in the way that we um, teach composition. Yes, the improvisational experience is important, you know, making music from scratch on the, on the spot, in the moment. Yes, of course, that's great to be able to feel instinctively what music can do. But we are we're also... Um, uh, determined to stress the importance of skills, traditional skills like notation. It's really important to be able to write your ideas down and and that requires a lot of intense uh, engagement, sometimes uh, an intense one-to-one -one engagement that hard-pressed teachers can sometimes um, find difficult uh, to bring to the individual uh, student experience. So when we are able to get into schools um, you know, a couple of composers suddenly arriving in the class. We're able to work one-to-one -one with the, the students and you can begin to see things crystallise much more immediately in that one-to-one -one experience. Um, j just because uh, there are cuts in education uh, shouldn't mean that that one-to-one -one experience, which is so important for us in whatever we did, uh, learning percussion instruments, learning trumpet, as I, I was a trumpeter, or, or indeed learning from another composer, it, it, it's, it's unbeatable. You, you, it's uh, it's, yeah. it's um, um, 
absolutely necessary. So we mm. need to bring that experience in, to the, the table in the teaching we do, at the, uh, the composition teaching in the Covenant Christ. And so we're training uh, student composers to learn with us and to come with us because they will be the teachers of the next generation. And uh, we need to get more composers, um, young student composers, composers in their early 20s, for example, being able to interact and encourage composers in their teens. Uh, mm. And that's something that we're uh, trying to build on as we um, um, establish more and more our activities at the Cumberland Trist. Why has it been important for you to remain in Scotland? And what is it about Scotland that inspires you and you feel that your music might have been different if you had decided to locate somewhere else? Mm. Yes, that's an interesting question. And over the years, I would have had very different answers for it. Um, at, at one point, it, 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 I would have answered by saying it doesn't really matter where, where I am, I'd still write the music I needed to write. I, I've certainly modified my um, response. Um, I, I think... For a long while, I would I would, I would have said um, my wife wanted to be in Scotland. Um, she she prepared, preferred to be here, and I and therefore I would prefer to be here. And and then of course children came along, and um, you know bringing children up and getting them to school, they they need that security and uh, uh, they need to be settled. Uh, so life uh, takes a, a momentum of its own. Uh, but then gradually, uh, over the years, I, I, I began to notice that I, I think my music is shaped by place, and, and many composers' mm. uh, lives are. And um, mm. I suppose my reluctance to acknowledge that might have been something to do with what uh, some in the arts would see as the limiting nature of localism. Um, you can argue that um, localism... Um, breeds um, nationalism um, or um, um, parochialism. Uh, there's all all these kind of uh, accusations have been thrown around <laughs> many of us, but you know there are accusations and and comments that have been made by uh, by or comments that have been made f about many composers, especially through the nineteenth century. Uh, but when you think about it, that localism. Uh, that focus on on where you are and who you are has been important for for many composers. Um, I, it just took me a longer while than most to realise that that was the case and that the the music was being shaped by place and maybe char mm. character of place. Um, uh, I I think that some of my work does reflect something of this country. Um, in the your introduction. You mentioned a piece I wrote over 30 years ago, The Confession of Isabel Gowdy. Um, that's a kind of tone poem, if you like, uh, an, an orchestral tone poem that paints a picture or tells a story about a real woman, um, a, a real event that happened here in Scotland, not too far from where you're from, actually, up at, in Aldern yes. in, in the north of Scotland. Um, a woman uh, who was accused of being a witch and had been has been celebrated or commemorated in many of the arts, including pop songs and um, the visual arts and 
Um, you know, maybe I wouldn't have written that piece if I wasn't from Scotland. Maybe I needed to be here and Scottish in order to really engage with a, a true Scottish story. And then I've written music about Iona. Um, but even in the works that don't uh, necessarily um, uh, reflect or, or mention where I'm from, I think in retrospect I can feel a kind of flavour of of the place. Mm. And some of that is Scottish, some of it is British. I mean, the great British composers of the 20th and 20th century have also been, English composers have been a, a big influence in me as well, sometimes without mm. me knowing it. Mm. And I think it's interesting because in your book, A Scots Song, A Life in, of Music, is you know, you mentioned how you engaged with traditional Scottish groups, you know, folk groups, um, as a whistle player and, and uh, as a singer and so on. But how you mentioned that you listened so intently as regards to the subtleties of what they did, you know, just all those little, little things that make this kind of music so special. Mm. And that really interested me because it's that deep listening that you have towards yourself, towards other, and then how you can almost, you know, make this a seamless pathway and therefore create a bridge for your audiences. And I think that's so interesting, really. Mm. And and perhaps that's why I also asked the question is that, um, I mean, Scotland is such a giving place. You know, the landscape is so giving. It, it, it really is. The people are so interesting. The dialects, the, the, the language, the, just everything about Scotland and, and the inventions that have come from Scotland and the arts and, and it goes on and on and on. But musically, it's still very much alive in a traditional sense. Mm. Yes, I mean, I got very interested in Scottish traditional music uh, when I was in my 20s. Uh, as many Scottish composers have done over the years, I can cite a number of them, uh, like Judith Weir, for example, the uh, master of the Queen's music. Um, uh, and she sometimes references Scottish traditional music. Uh, Peter Maxwell Davis did that as well with his use of the bagpipes, uh, mm. but also his awareness of Scottish traditional uh, ornamentation and so on, and some of my old friends uh, from 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 Glasgow, like William Sweeney, uh, who wrote this wonderful choral piece called Salamoniering, which is uh, Gaelic for Sam of the Land, where you could hear the influence of um, Gaelic Sam singing. And uh, that was a, a revelation as well. Lyle Cresswell, who's actually from New Zealand, one of his um, early pieces was, was a an orchestral piece called Sam, again referencing what happens there and the that incredible mm. sound of the cantor uh, leading the congregation in a kind of ornamented uh, line. Um, mm. uh, Edward, uh, sorry, uh, Edward Maguire, uh, who is a member oh, yeah. of the the Binkies, the, the folk group, <laughs> and you know he he worked and played traditional music all his life. That got under the skin of his music, and I I mm. I took my lead from that, and I, I joined folk bands when I was a, a young man, and played round about the folk clubs and the the bars of the in the west of Scotland, playing uh, whistle, as you say, and singing and keyboard and so on. And I picked up a lot 
from my colleagues who were some of whom were pipers or traditional folk singers and without me realizing it a lot of that influence was indeed being absorbed and going under the skin of the music and to begin with mm. I would I perhaps do it deliberately try to evoke uh, those musical memories but eventually I, I did it so much that I, I was doing it without knowing it uh, I was doing it subconsciously um, and it became part of the fabric of the music making and e even today mm -hmm. when I, I don't play a, a lot of uh, folk music anymore I'm, I can still hear and s see those influences emerging and I, I speak to singers, choral singers who uh, are always talking about the ornamentation in my motets and choral music, and they find it quite hard to do. Uh, you know that kind of little shake, the diddly hum, that you sometimes get, and that comes naturally to Scottish fiddle music, or indeed the the Peabrook players. Uh, I'm doing it in my choral music, and um, it takes a little bit of getting used to and trying to get a whole section of tenors, for example, uh, to to do to do an ornament together. It's, it's similar to getting a whole section of a violins and an orchestra to do it. To do it. it, it's got to be worked at. It doesn't come naturally to uh, classical players, especially if they're not Scottish or Irish. Uh, if they're at the other end of the world, how do they accommodate that? And but it can be done, oh. and uh, it's certainly a talking point among musicians. It's it's interesting because I remember as a. Uh, a little girl in, in primary school, we all did Scottish country dancing. And uh, and then, of course, I started percussion from the age of 12 and did a lot of the, the Scots style of snare drumming. But it was only when I started playing the bagpipes in my 20s that suddenly the dancing and the snare drumming all made sense. And it was almost this triangle that had happened. And so all of the little twiddly notes that happen on the pipes really are so connected with the uh, the little flams and drags and ornamentation on the snare drum and therefore the footwork with the dancing. And it is quite interesting how it took so many years for this penny to drop in a way. But um, but I think, you know, what I find inspiring about all of this is, you know, through the Come Not Trist initiative, you know, it's a wonderful way, I would imagine, to bring young people who are perhaps more interested in the traditional music, but want to be part of this whole, you know, journey that you've provided for young people and not feel excluded because you have really embraced that, uh, you know, traditional landscape as well. Yes, uh, I find it a very uh, useful way of uh, um, building bridges uh, between different kinds of musicians. Uh, the barriers come down once you realise yeah. that we all share certain experiences and enthusiasms. And uh, I think that's important, especially in classical music, which in many ways has maintained a, a very broad interest over the centuries. Um, I mean, you can trace an interest in the music of the people right back through the 19th century and even before that. Um, uh, Mozart and Beethoven were interested in folk music. Haydn set um, texts by Robert Burns, uh, so did Beethoven. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the connections between high art music, if you like, and uh, vernacular music has, is uh, well established. 
and and that should continue and it continues with other vernacular musics if you like pop music and jazz and you know Stravinsky was interested in, in in what the jazz musicians in the states were doing in the 20s and 30s and 40s and um and he picked up a lot of that and it, it and it's and so it goes on. I think it's important that in our dialogues with uh, young musicians, that we keep um, inspiring them to find out more about music they don't know. And for a lot of them, they know that they've succumbed to the old and tired arguments that classical music isn't for them and classical music is elitist and. Um, and trying to trying to dissuade them from that is is a, can be a bit of a battle, but it's a worthwhile battle, because if they open their ears to one form of music that is outside their own little path, they 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 suddenly find themselves interested in lots of other things, and although mm. um, music is more available now than ever before, uh, at the click of a switch you you can hear. Um, a whole range of music from the past and from the other side of the world. Uh, nevertheless, we live in a culture which likes to like us likes us to keep in our lanes more than ever, and that that is a problem. You know, trying to get young musicians to think outside the box that has been laid down for them, um, and it's mm. not just about classical music. You know, I find I find a lot of my conversations with these young young musicians is try, say try and listen to music that. Uh, young people in India, for example, young people your age in India or in Indonesia are listening to music of their culture. What does that say to you? So, so then they start listening to gamelan music, or the Indian ragas, or uh, Korean farmer drumming, or, or whatever. You know, the kind of music that, um, in a sense, because of our interest in ethnomusicology, as it was once called, uh, we we t- we found it important to know about. Um, mm. And, you know, when I say uh, to them, as well as listening, as well as learning and knowing about Scottish traditional music or the latest pop uh, singers, what about uh, Mongolian Tuvan throat singing? Uh, make that an exercise this week that you go onto YouTube and listen to that for the first time. Mm. And then they're astonished mm. by what they, they, they hear. And then, then the next week, well, try... Try a Shostakovich symphony, <laughs> just to be yeah. outside the box. And uh, I think it's important that music ed- education is wide uh, as well as focused. And I suppose it's almost thinking of this as a timeline. You know, what was the music throughout the world in the well? You know, whenever 16th century or 17th century or whenever you know 21st century. So what is happening in China? What is happening in Africa? What is happening in Latin America? What is happening in Scotland? And see all the the variations and see how that has changed. So just as we learn to read a score, you know, vertically as well as horizontally, I guess maybe it's opening up our listening. Uh, to the music of the world, but almost in a timeline type of type of way, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's it's absolutely fascinating. And I know that someone like Jacob Jacob Collier, um, whom I've spoken to in the past, you know, has revealed just how incredible it was with his upbringing, where his mum would just sort of say, "Oh, listen to this. Oh, listen to this. Listen to this," and it was the most eclectic, you know. Things that he he was given to listen to without them being categorised, and I, I think that was quite interesting. And so he has this just wonderful openness to to what he does. Mm-hmm. But just moving on a little bit, James, um, because I'm very conscious that I'm I'm taking up a fair amount of your time, um, and I've got so many questions. 
Um, but what is the best moment in the process of having a new piece realized? So is it getting to the finishing line as far as getting it all notated and all the parts sorted out? Is it the first rehearsal? Is it the world premiere? Is it a hundred performances down the road? What is that moment when you think, oh gosh, that that just gives me such joy? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yes. Or are you ultra, ultra critical? You know, do you find that, oh gosh, I really struggle hearing my own pieces or are you always nitpicking at things? I don't know what the process is with you. Mm, um... The, the actual writing process is uh, all embracing, it's all involving, it, it takes over your life. Um, sometimes it's joyful, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's a real struggle. Um, um, you have to be critical, self-critical, uh, making decisions um, that will affect the, not just the flow of the music, the evolution of the music, but let's say the quality of the music as well. Um, so perhaps a burst of, of um, compositional activity will produce a lot of material, but then in reflection, and those reflections are vital, you realise that some of it is flawed, maybe all of it is flawed, and it needs to be revisited in some way. And those, those can be dispiriting moments, but they're absolutely mm. vital to the process um, and that, that, you, that you revisit almost immediately uh, your choices and your decisions, subject them to, you know, a middle-aged composer like me doesn't have a teacher anymore, and I sometimes wish I, I did have my teacher looking over my shoulder telling me, maybe, maybe you need to rethink your steps there. Uh, you have to do that yourself now. Um, uh, so all that is part of the process, and and although it's not necessarily joyful, um, you realise that it's 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 making the music better, um, it's shaping the music in a particular way, and the reflection process is all-consuming. It it can take over your lives, and sometimes in a way that um, allows you to focus on nothing else, um, and and that that can have its problems. You know, if you're living and sleeping moments are dominated by uh, the task at hand, uh, the, you know, mm. the, the, the issues that have to be faced. That, that can be um, good and bad. Yeah, so are deadlines important for you? Does that help you focus or do you like a free sort of time? Uh, deadlines time are, are very useful. They, they, they um, have an effect on the adrenaline sometimes and, and, and fo force you to make decisions. But, you know, once a double bar goes on a piece, uh, it's a moment of elation, I would say, um, mm. uh, and celebration. You usually get some champagne out or something after, after, um, <laughs> after the completion of a big piece. Um, um, but, you know, it, it's all still in the head. It's all still in the brain, uh, in the memory. And um, there's nothing quite matches the excitement of hearing the music come alive at a first rehearsal when the music is suddenly in the hands of other people and they're making it come alive in their own way, in their own hands, in their own flesh. And it's a bit like uh, the difference between... I mean, this is, this is showing our age, I suppose, Evelyn, but, you know, in, in our day, <laughs> we, we had... when Before photographs were digitalised, you, you took a photograph and you had a black and white negative 
uh, and you have to take that negative along to the chemists to get it to get it made into technicolor and you know the difference between having that music in your brain and hearing it for the first time is a bit like the difference between your black and white negative uh, which is complete in itself, but not quite fully fleshed out in Technicolor, and then seeing the photograph in full Technicolor, which is what happens when you hear the music being played. Uh, and there's, there's an immense excitement about uh, that transition. Um, and the mm. first, first rehearsal is vital, but obviously the first performance is, is, is very exciting too. It's a great way of describing it, a really nice analogy there. And, and yes, I do remember that process and then the excitement of Polaroid cameras where it was instant or instant cameras or whatever they were called. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, have there been, just on a more uh, funny note, have there been pieces of music in that first rehearsal where you, you felt absolutely, oh my gosh, that's not at all what I thought I'd written? Or you you've it's actually much more positive than you thought <laughs> the big highs or lows in that department mm. well it's it's a while now since i've had uh, a negative response uh, to the first first <laughs> performance and that's something that comes with age i suppose if you're a young composer you can sometimes be surprised by what you've done um, mm. but part of the education process and, and the growing and the maturing uh, is uh, uh, coming to terms with what is on the page so that that first encounter is not the surprise or the shock that it is sometimes for the young composer. I have sometimes more recently been in, a, in situations where I didn't recognise my own music. I walked into a rehearsal uh, just a few years ago, actually, and because, because I try to stick to deadlines, and those deadlines are sometimes well in advance, sometimes a year, up to, uh, a year in advance of first performance, mm. um, you, you forget about what you've done. And I, I wandered into a, a, a rehearsal and it took me a little while to realise, oh, that, that's my music, um, <laughs> which is quite strange, I suppose. But there, is a, there has to be a kind of necessary forgetting um, when you put the double bar on a piece of music because the next piece beckons, the next piece uh, uh, becomes a priority. You have to forget everything you've done. And it's a very strange and mysterious moment when everything that has mm. that has existed in your mind uh, collapses almost immediately, um, uh, dissolves. It's it's a strange feeling uh, that you know everything that has kept you alive for months, sometimes years, um, it, it really feels like in an instant dissolves. Um, it's mm. a very strange experience, but it's a necessary forgetting because the mind has to be refreshed, the soul has to be refreshed, the, the compositional instinct and imagination has to be refreshed, the new task is at hand. And, and that's mm. why I say when I come to a piece uh, that I've written a year previously as, a, as, a, as an interpreter, it's sometimes like learning a, a, a brand new score for the first time, it's like learning a piece I've never seen before. And that's important too, because you can't come at your own music with any preconceptions. You've got to learn it objectively, learn it afresh objectively mm. with new ears and new eyes. Yeah, that's really interesting. And of course, you tell the the story in your book about uh, working with Sir Colin Davis. And, and I believe it was he who mentioned to you, well, you know, why don't you consider conducting? And and that's, that's interesting because, you know, you mentioned, well, you had no really 
uh, aspirations to be on a conductor's podium and so on. And, and you needed a lesson and you asked him for a lesson, and uh, which was a, a really interesting experience. But how has this journey of being a conductor, because you're hugely respected as a conductor in your own right, and of course you're very supportive of uh, other composers' music, composers who are alive, and uh, but how has that experience helped you as a composer? Yes, well, I had no intention of uh, conducting um, for years. I mean, I, I dabbled in it even from at primary school. I, I was just the one that was uh, that needed to organise people together. I suppose there has to be a kind of organisational <laughs> instinct with a compo- with a conductor. You just get people gathered mm. together to do this. And I certainly had that, although I never really took it very seriously. Um, and uh, I was well into my 30s, really, before someone said, you, you should do this in a more focused way. Um, mm. And, uh, and, and, and I had some great advice along the way, including from Sir Colin Davis. Um, but, you know, I, I suddenly realised, you know, I had to... Uh, step up. I, I've, I've never really had a composition, I've never really had a conducting lesson in my life. Apart from that one encounter uh, with Colin Davis, uh, I've sometimes surreptitiously sneaked into rehearsals, of course, uh, by the great conductors and uh, my great friend Martin Brabens has allowed me to sit at the oh. back of some of his master classes. It's been mm. great uh, to observe something like that. But um, no, I, I did a bit of an abilitated apprenticeship through my 30s and 40s, really, um, you know, scuttling off to uh, little places and, and trying, trying things out with, with, with orchestras that, you know, where I wouldn't be noticed too much uh, and learning <laughs> technique and so on. Because I needed to do that. Um, um, you know, I, I remember, uh, I think what... what turned my mind towards this was that, uh, again, this piece, The Confession of Isabel Gaudi, it was a few years old when the, the Philharmonia Orchestra decided to do it um, and um, Giuseppe Sinopoli, who was the conductor at the time, uh, was, was going to do it and, uh, at the Royal Festival Hall. And I got a, a call at the beginning of that week from the, the manager of the Philharmonia uh, and basically said, look, James... Um, Maestro Sinopoli hasn't learned the piece. Would you come down and do it in in the middle of this concert? And at that stage, I had never been in the Royal Festival Hall before. Um, I, I don't think I certainly had never conducted a London orchestra. I had conducted a few orchestras, but without taking it very seriously and taking me very seriously, I said yes. So uh, at the end of that week, I was in the Royal Festival Hall conducting the Confession of Isabel Gaudi. Uh, in front of a big audience and and something just kind of uh, I wouldn't say snapped but twigged overnight and I said yes uh, this this is something that is important and it's something I should be doing and um, gradually I've, I've, I've evolved my own strategies I, I wouldn't do everything uh, I do a lot of my colleagues music as, as you say living and dead uh, I think I have an insight into my colleagues music um, that they appreciate that they, they know that they have a, 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 a um, someone on a collaborator, if you like, an ally yeah. with a, with a, a composer at the helm, 
and I think that, yeah. that's appreciated. But, you know, I've, I've evolved some uh, standard repertoire as well. There's certain things I like doing, some things I won't do. Uh, life is short. And uh, so yeah. I've, I've established a, a kind of niche area as a composer who does these kind of things and, and not those kind of things. And it seems to work. And it, it very much seems to work, but has it given you a different perspective of your own pieces? Because I know over the years you and I have collaborated on Veni Veni Emanuel and, and in your own uh, compositions when you have to conduct them. Do you, do you look at the score and think, who on earth wrote that? Yeah. Or why on earth did I write that or something? Oh, very much so. And uh, <laughs> there's, uh, it's given me an insider's view of, of the making of music, uh, which is essential. Mm. It's, it's not... Uh, a total prerequisite. Uh, I mean, there are there are composers, of course, who aren't conductors and perhaps not even instrumentalists of note uh, that that can still write great music. Um, uh, and sometimes something very strange and wonderful happens. And for example, uh, Poulenc was not uh, a singer. Poulenc was not au fait, really, with the working of, workings of choirs. But he's given us this wonderful repertoire of uh, beautiful but rather strange choral music. Uh, and you can tell it's not a singer that's making it. Um, you can feel the, the hands going down and chords, a piano, uh, with that music. Uh, but it, it's, it's nevertheless, it's something that's um, wonderful. Um, but... I would say that having a, 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 a player's eye or an insider's eye uh, on, the, on the performance of music has been absolutely invaluable. And I sometimes look mm. at early works and say, yes, that is um, BC, that is my music before conducting. Um, um, <laughs> and there's some things I wouldn't do now. There are things in the Confession of Isabel Gaudi and even Veni Veni Emanuel that are difficult and perhaps with a with a conductor's perspective, I would do differently. It doesn't make them less um, effective as a as music, though. But certainly, there's something happens when you go onto that podium and you say, "Ah, that's that's how they 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 work." Uh, that that mm. is, I think, that is very important. It's interesting that, and and from a soloist point of view, when you have the composer. And also, being the, the conductor, it's like, ah, doubly stressful. <laughs> but nevertheless, and of course, we have to talk a wee bit more about Veni Veni Manuel because it's, um, you know, it's been such a stalwart of a, a piece, not just within the percussion world, but in the music world as a whole. And can you remember all those years ago what your thoughts were when you were asked to write a percussion Concerto. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, well, I was delighted uh, that I was asked. <laughs> uh, by you your... don't have to say that, James. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was aware of other concertos that you had commissioned uh, beforehand. The one that really got to me and made me really think, I want to do this, was Dominic Muldowney's concerto, which you don't really uh -huh. hear very much uh, these days. But I was struck by the mechanism. Mm. I saw you play it heard you play it mm. um, in London and, and elsewhere and it was obviously very hard and, and, the, and the musicians had click tracks and earphones and so on but mm. there was something about it um, that 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 uh, drew me in and of course there have been many mm. other great concertos uh, as well but I, I remember thinking I'd like to do this but the, the mm. task is how on earth do you balance uh, 
what in essence is a is an orchestra of percussion instruments. If you want to use all 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 yep. those things with um, a real orchestra uh, and and very much an orchestra of the. 19th century, an orchestra that hasn't really changed very much since Brahms's day, um, uh, you know, the, 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 and, and perhaps alongside my music, that orchestra would perform the works of Brahms or Beethoven and so on. So it's, there's a kind of strange clash of instrumental colours and cultures. Um, there is the mm. 19th century classical or, 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 or Orchestra with this orchestra of sounds that, have, in essence, have evolved throughout the twentieth century. The twentieth and twenty-first centuries has been the is when the the percussion per percussion department, the percussion section of an orchestra grew. Um, and we th- mm. think back to the early early nineteen hundreds, and you know it might have been timps and a bass drum and a triangle that a lot of. Mm. Uh, composers were were working with and then gradually all these other things began to emerge through our openness to other cultures through Debussy Mm. hearing gamelan music at uh, the Paris Exposition uh, in the late 19th century and so on and gradually all these instruments which in essence have their roots in other parts of the world and indeed other cultures in India, the Far East, Africa, South America They've evolved into the the percussion section and indeed the percussion orchestra. So making those two Mm. worlds meld uh, was my task. uh, Mm. And I mean... and, and, and sorry to interrupt, because in a way, you, you had used percussion so extensively in your orchestral pieces before Veni Veni and in the chamber uh, pieces and so on. I mean, percussion was a real force in your music yes. even prior to Veni Veni. Yes, yes, very much so. It was uh, it become very much an, an essential part of the orchestral palette in the music that mm. I wrote. I was, I've been very excited I had been very excited about using percussion, tuned and untuned, in works like The Confession of Visible Gaudia, and that, that continues. Um, but it was important for me in this concerto for you, Evelyn, that I found something that, that allowed the unity to take place. And for me, yeah. that was this, this little figure uh, from the Veni Veni Emmanuel chant, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, uh, and in the chorus, those of you who, who know your Advent hymns uh, will know that uh, in the chorus it goes, Rejoice, rejoice, just those bum, 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 just those two notes. But also there's a pulse there, a short, long, short, long. There's a rhythmic element to that. Um, and that became the kind of rhythmic, but also um, um, thematic DNA of the music, and in almost every bar of Veni Veni Emmanuel, you notice uh, whether you as a soloist or somewhere in the orchestra, there's this little bum 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 bum, a kind of human heartbeat, mm. in fact, which completely mm. relates to the the purpose of the piece, which was to reflect the the incarnation, uh, which was the idea of God becoming man. And it's funny when you think about um, historically, you know, percussion was often seen as. Um, the the devil kind of sound world, you know, in religious music, yeah. and and not all religions, of course. And here we are dealing, you know, with a percussion concerto where the the percussion and all the sound colours and the, the 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 attacks and the resonances and so on is is, is at the fore. Mm. And so, did you feel? Uh, 
I mean, had that crossed your mind or was it more the fact that percussion is so innate in us all, you know, that the, the, the physicality of, of not, not just playing percussion, but of receiving the percussion sound and that resonance, you know, whether it's from a low tom-tom or a, a vibraphone or a, a tam-tam or bells or was it the instruments themselves or the actual journey of the sound that or the the, the large frequency range or well what was happening I think there? it's something to do with the fact that a lot of these instruments do come originally from vernacular cultures folk cultures um uh, whether it be our folk background or traditional music of Scotland uh, I don't think I actually wrote a boran into your piece but I have used the boran uh, in other works <laughs> but you know these other drums and so on, they have their they have their roots in dancing the dance cultures of of many different um civilizations including our own and um and jazz music and pop music and so on and it's that viscerality as you as you say that um is always exciting in percussion music and uh, bring something very special to the world of art music, if you like, too. That's true. And I mean, after you had written that piece, because it received such an incredible ovation and, and the longevity of it has really been so incredibly special and so many performers from around the world have really embraced this piece of music. Um, but what did you learn about percussion? having written the percussion concerto, because you've since written a second percussion concerto. And I'm just interested to know, well, did you have to almost forget about Veni Veni? Mm. Uh, or did you feel that, no, that was a vehicle to then extend into a second percussion concerto? Well, I would never have been able to uh, rethink the whole idea if it hadn't been for Veni Veni. And, and the experience of writing Veni Veni has impacted so much uh, on, on everything I've, I've written uh, for orchestra. But when, when I wrote my second percussion concerto, I'd, I needed to have a very different character. I had to rethink uh, the whole thing. It had to be a very different sound world, new instruments perhaps, mm. different instruments, uh, and perhaps a, a different kind of um, uh, approach to the mood uh, there was no point in, in writing, re retracing my steps. I had to be significantly separate from Veni Venue. And I think there was, mm. was a 20, 30, maybe between 20 and 30 years between the, the two works, uh, which is yes. just about time enough to uh, distance myself from what it meant to write Veni Venue and move into a different kind of mental space for the second piece. Mm. And that's actually quite a long time when you think about it, um, which is which is amazing. And, and we're just so grateful that we all do have this second percussion concerto available to us. Um, but James, I just really want to um, just say a huge thank you to everything that you have given us all um, through the amazing creations um, over the years. And I know that there are will be so much more for us all to enjoy. But my final, final question to you is, little fun one here, if you were, now, and you mentioned that you've moved to Ayrshire in a more secluded area and where that um, sort of chance to have some peace, quiet, 
reflection, space, and so on is really important to you. If you were stranded on a desert island, what would the five sounds, so five sounds as opposed to pieces of music, you would like to have available to you? <laughs> mm. Well, I think it would have to be uh, similar to the sounds of solace, sounds of solitude uh, that I have out here in the wilds of North Ayrshire, although probably a little bit more exotic if it was in a South Sea uh, desert <laughs> island. But the things I love here are the sounds of birds, oh, um, which I've never really noticed until I moved out of Glasgow, and the very different kind of sounds. I mean, Messiaen, of course, the, the great French composer, uh, was fascinated by birds, and he wrote those sounds of birdsong into his music, and I can understand why he did that. And I see and hear uh, woodpeckers here and owls in the evening, which are wonderful. Is that two? So woodpeckers and owls. Um, <laughs> um, You're becoming um, the, an, an expert on birds there, James. <laughs> the, the sound of... Um, uh, there's a little brook uh, which runs uh, past the house here and in full spate, uh, and it's, that usually happens a lot uh, in, in these wetlands of uh, the west of Scotland. Uh, those sounds are wonderful. Uh, I love the sound of water flowing. Um, um, the sounds of the wind, I love them. Sometimes it can be very uh, extreme out here. We're quite exposed out in the hill. If there was some wind in this desert island, I would welcome that. Um, probably more gentle than it tends to be here. <laughs> Uh, but I, I like the sounds of storms, uh, strangely. Um, my wife thinks I'm, I'm perverse, but uh, uh, I like the, <laughs> the sound of storms in, in the wintertime. Um, uh, and perhaps it does have a, a, an impact on the music. Perhaps storminess is something that uh, is essential in, in my music as well as the uh, serenity. And mm. um, uh, what else? Uh, the, 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 well, I mean, have you ever heard a deer bark? Uh, we have roe deer here in, in Ayrshire. It's not a particularly beautiful sound. In fact, when we first heard it, we were absolutely terrified. We wondered if there was some kind of strange being uh, haunt, haunting us. Uh, but, but actually, I, I like the sound of roe deer barking. Uh, and we see quite a lot of them here. They come into the garden. Oh. Uh, they're a bit of a menace. They, they eat all the flowers. But, but actually, the sight... And indeed, the sound of roe deer, uh, especially in the spring, uh, can be wonderful. So if there were some deer um, on this island, I I'd be well pleased. That sounds terrific, James. <laughs> and I think a lot of those descriptions do indeed match your music for sure. But I wish you all the very, very best, especially with uh, the terrific project that you've created um, through Cumnock Trist. I mean, that is just going to be and is already a hugely exciting venture um, for all musicians. And of course, you are looking globally at mm -hmm. this in, in order to make major links and uh, making sure that our uh, music industry moving forward is well and truly taken care of. So mm -hmm. thank you so much for that indeed. And thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's been great to be with you today. Oh, it's lovely seeing you too. Thank you. Okay, all the best. I'd like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. 
Thank you so much for listening. See you in my next one.